our text today from the Gospel lesson in John chapter 12. It occurs just prior. Actually, it occurs the day before Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So in John chapter 12, verse 1, it's six days before the Passover. And thus six days before Jesus' execution. His days are numbered, and he knows it. At the end of the previous chapter, chapter 11, after Lazarus was raised, we looked at that story last week, after the raising of Lazarus, we're told there that the chief priests and the Pharisees, they had given a command, a fatwa, basically. If anyone knew where Jesus was, it should be reported to them, and they would arrest him. And Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, cynical and ruthless high priest, Caiaphas, he prophesied. It's at the end of John chapter 11. He prophesied that it would be expedient for one man to die rather than for the whole nation to perish at the hands of the Romans. And we're told from that day on, right after the Lazarus event, they plotted to put him to death. And if you glance down just after our text this morning, you'll see that they also sought to put Lazarus to death. Because the text says, on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews had come to believe in Jesus. They would rather kill the witness, Lazarus, and suppress the evidence than to embrace the implications of the miracle. So when you get to this text this morning... There is mortal danger on every side as the story unfolds. So we'll make three points. They're in the back there on the inside page of the bulletin. The the banquet, the anointing, and the evaluation. So first, the banquet itself. Again, now, six days before the Passover, the text says, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And as we mentioned last week, Bethany's two miles. It's in sight distance of Jerusalem. Two miles outside of it. it, is it this means it's in the danger zone of the arrest warrant. So, what is our Lord doing in the midst of these bloodthirsty plots? Well, he's having a dinner party having a dinner party. Celebration, perhaps, almost certainly, at least in said The text tells us it's in honor of Jesus, perhaps in honor of Lazarus' raising from the dead. And the word used in the text for supper, it implies a more formal occasion. So it's not a casual, it's like a banquet. Jesus' ministry begins... In John's Gospel, in chapter 2, with a wedding feast. And here, right near the very end, it ends with a supper party. Though to be sure, the atmosphere here would be a little different. Something like this. It's a mixture. It's a celebratory atmosphere, to be sure. But there's this sober shadow of the cross hanging over the events. 
And if you look at this event in Mark's gospel, Mark tells us that it was the house of one Simon the leper. Almost certainly someone whom Jesus had healed. Thus, probably now, Simon the ex-leper. But notice, it would be an act of great bravery for Simon to host Jesus under these conditions. Right? This is not an invitation that costs nothing. And it would be a courageous act for anyone to attend the dinner. The mere existence of the dinner is a subversive act. And Matthew makes it clear that Jesus' disciples were in attendance. So that's the atmosphere of Martha. You get inside and you see Martha, as is her wont, serving. And Lazarus, her brother, is among the guests. And he's reclining at table with Jesus. I mean, imagine that. Imagine an invite to this dinner. You get to eat with Jesus and with a man who just last week was dead for four days. And almost certainly with a leper whom Jesus had healed. What a meal this must have been. You can imagine Lazarus sitting there with his mug that says, I was raised from the dead, what's your testimony? (laughs) Now, if you're looking at this meal from the point of view of the Jewish authorities, Right, this is what military people call a target-rich environment. They're seeking to kill Jesus and Lazarus. They have them both here together under one roof. So Jesus' father is spreading a table before him literally in the presence of his enemies. Feasting is, for Christian people, a sign of triumph. And it's a sign of defiance to the dark principalities and powers of death. In the valley of the shadow of death is where this banquet takes place. And Jesus fears no evil because his Father's goodness and mercy spread before him in this feast, follow him into his passion and into his burial and up into his exaltation. So that's the meal. I hope to come back and say a little bit more about the meal. But the second point for now is the anointing. Now, in this culture, you didn't sit down to eat. You reclined at table. This is a strange thing for us, I think. Reclining here meant you laid on the floor on your left elbow and you ate with your right hand. It doesn't sound very comfortable to me. It sounds like an obliques workout, you know? But that's how they ate. That's what they did. And this posture, because they ate this way and they took this bodily posture, it facilitates what happens next in the text. Look at verse 3. We're told that Mary, Lazarus' other sister, she takes a pound, about a pound, of this very costly oil and she anoints the feet of Jesus. By the way, this is not the same event in Luke's gospel where a prostitute comes and does this, though Mary may have been there and had her heart stirred by that event. This is a distinct event. 
So she takes a pound of costly oil, anoints the feet of Jesus. Judas claims later that it was worth about a year's wages for a, for a day laborer. Scholars estimate this amount of oil would be worth about twelve dollars to $15,000 in today's money. And in the other Gospels, we're told she also kept this oil in an alabaster jar. This is a you know, simple and unscripted act of absolute adoration for Jesus. Mary freely disregarding all practicality. Right? Disregarding all social convention. Right? Beyond any kind of self-consciousness in the presence of all the other dinner guests. She pours out her devotion for Christ. So for her, for this Mary, the kingdom is in fact like a treasure hidden in a field, which when one finds it, one for sheer joy upon finding it sells everything that one has to possess it. Her devotion to Jesus is pure and full-bodied and costly. And it's unusual that she anoints his feet. In the other Gospels, which recount this event, it's said that Jesus' head was anointed. An anointing was typically in the Middle East done on the head. It's possible Mary anointed his head and his feet. But we need to ask, why the focus on the feet in this text? Why the focus on the feet? Well, in the flow of John's gospel, it's not that hard to figure this out. In this culture, guests would typically wash or anoint their own feet. A servant might supply water, but the guests would wash their own feet. And so Mary is taking a place lower than the lowest servant here in washing Jesus' feet. Now, what's beautiful about this is this is an act which anticipates what Jesus will do in the very next chapter when he washes his disciples' feet. So she's imitating the master even before he sets the example for us. Mary has grasped something of the inner mystery of the gospel. And the text continues in verse 3 saying that she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, this was against all custom for a Jewish woman. They were not permitted, under normal circumstances, to have their hair unbound in public. It was considered a sign of immorality. There's a story, I think I've mentioned it here before, of a, of a Jewish woman who raised seven righteous sons. And she was asked what her secret was as a mother. And her answer was, the rafters of this house have never seen my hair unbound. So that will show you how deep down in Jewish piety it is, right, to, to not let your hair down in public. So in this culture, this act is improper. It has a deep air of impropriety about it. But Jesus has never allowed true devotion to be shackled by cultural norms. He never, he, he never submits to this. We always need to ask ourselves, I think, is it scripture 
that warrants this behavior or forbids this behavior? Or is it my cultural reading of Scripture? Because people are always collapsing them together. There's no one in this room except Jesus who thinks that this letting down of the hair is, is inconsequential. Everybody else thinks she can't, she can't do that. And Jesus is going to defend her vigorously. At the end of verse 3, you're told the house was filled with this fragrance of the oil or the perfume. It's hard here not to think of Paul calling the apostolic ministry a fragrant aroma. A fragrance for some that leads from life to life, for others from death to death. But we know that for Mary, the fragrance of the gospel calls forth the fragrance of her extravagant love for Jesus. It's important to remember, Mary's a sinful person. She's weak. She has all human disorders like everyone else. But you know what? All of us in our state of sin and weakness and disorder and frailty, sometimes we can think we can't give this kind of extravagant love to Jesus. No, you can. You can. Mary's not some sort of super saint up here. She's just a person. Jesus wants your body, your soul, your mind, your heart. He wants you to love him extravagantly. He doesn't say there's some sort of holiness threshold that you have to get past, and then you can love me extravagantly. Mary's just an ordinary person. And so she has this extravagant love for Jesus. And so can you. So should you. She's like the bride in the Song of Songs who says this, While the king is at his table, my oil sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me. If if Jesus is precious to us, costly, then the fragrance of his beauty makes us fragrant. It's a question we could ask ourselves from this text. What does your spiritual life smell like? I mean, what are people sniffing when they're around you? What are they getting? What are they getting? We want them to get extravagant love for Jesus because of his extravagant love for us. And that can happen today. As I said, there's no threshold here. So that's the anointing. Third, the evaluation. And here I mean Judas' evaluation of events, and then Jesus' evaluation of events. Judas stands in stark contrast to Mary. For Judas, the coming of the Lord's gospel is an aroma, but it's an aroma of death to death. But I want to note something here, because it's always easy when you read these accounts where Judas is the villain to, to think, well, Judas is a uniquely evil guy. That doesn't really maybe bear down on us. Well, In Matthew's and Mark's account, they say either that some people or the disciples get indignant at Mary. Here it's Judas. But in the other accounts, we know Judas is not alone. Some of the other dinner guests and indeed some of the disciples also get indignant at this action of Mary's. So Judas is not alone in his protest. Judas represents a certain cast of mind. 
a certain cast of mind, shared by at least some of the disciples. So don't bracket Judas out and, and say, well, you know, he's uniquely bad. So the cast of mind here is one which never stops thinking about cost. I mean, you can sympathize with it, right? It's a practical, cautious cast of mind. He says in verse 5, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. You know, it's something which in another context you could imagine Jesus saying. Right? I mean, it doesn't sound... I mean, it's very easy to picture Jesus saying... Sell this perfume, give it to the poor, and come follow me. I mean, it's not a bizarre sentiment. But it's insidiously wicked in this context. And as I've said before, insidious wickedness often masks itself as righteous indignation. Right? There's a ring of piety to what Judas is saying, but it's fraudulent. When he looks at this, he thinks this is a foolish action. It's bad stewardship on Mary's part. Not only is it bad stewardship, she does it so freely and spontaneously, no one was consulted about this. It has no bottom line cash value of what good can this be for the kingdom? What good does this do to the bodies and souls of needy men and women? Of course, John gives us an aside in verse 6. John says, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he used to steal from the money box. So he sees this as, you know, preventing his own ability to profit. For him, the poor are just a cover. But remember, Judas is not the only one who sees it this way. There's a bunch of people in the room who see it this way. So the dishonest thievery aside, the mindset is prevalent. I mean, after all, here's a reasonable solution. After all, why not use a small amount to anoint Jesus' head, another amount to anoint Jesus' feet, and then give the rest, maybe two-thirds, maybe 10000 of the $15,000, give the rest to the poor. That way, everyone's happy with that, and it's a win-win situation. Jesus gets anointed, you show him your love and devotion, the poor get $10,000. Problem solved. But you know, here's the problem with that. Neither the logic nor the finances of devotion work that way. Right? There's no business model for devotion to Jesus. It works on its own extravagant, strange calculus. And it's not going to be corralled or chaperoned. It's different and it's strange. And you can see that this is how Jesus thinks in his evaluation and his defense of Mary, which begins in verse 7. Here's Jesus' response to the people muttering in the room. Let her alone. That's a pretty forceful opening statement. In other words, cut it out with the we could have given this to the poor stuff. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying here. Let her alone. And then he, in Mark, he says, why are you troubling her? Why are you troubling her? He says in those other Gospels, 
She's done a beautiful thing to me. To me. And so Judas sees waste. He sees fiscal irresponsibility. Judas sees beauty. I mean, Jesus. Jesus sees beauty. Jesus sees beauty. And here's the thing about beauty. It's its own justification. It's its own end. It doesn't need any pious gloss on it. She's done a beautiful thing, Jesus says to me, and he's moved by it. He goes on, Jesus does, and he adds an actual redemptive significance to this action. He raises this action, our Lord does, to this extraordinary level of dignity and honor. He says, she has kept this for the day of my burial. It's remarkable. Jesus is saying something like this. Whether she knows it or not, she has prophetically anointed me for my impending death. Judas is preparing for my death by treachery. She is consecrating me for my passion, anointing me for my royal, kingly mission. That's why this is a burial banquet. That's a robust defense. Right? That's an understanding of the theological dimensions of beauty centered on the person of Jesus Christ, to which the calculus of calculating people cannot ascend. And so Jesus concludes in verse 8, and here's alluding to Deuteronomy 15. He says, the poor you have with you always, but me you don't always have, or you do not have always. The poor you have with you always, but me not always. There's two things we can say about this. First is this, and this is something missed by everybody in the room, I think. This is an act of charity of the most noble kind toward the poor one who was rich, but for our sakes became poor. Now, it's true, you'd have to think a little theologically to see the act that way, but this is how Jesus is thinking. People think, this is a waste. This money could have been given to the poor. And the money is being poured out on him who left the infinite splendor of his father's house to take on the poverty of our condition. Second, notice this. There are good deeds like charity toward the poor, which can be done at any time. And there are good deeds like the one Mary does here, which have to be done now. Because our Lord, with respect to his bodily presence, is not going to be with them always. We can say more before we close on this text. If you look at the accounts of this event, again, in the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, Jesus adds one more line. And it's amazing. He says this. Wherever this Gospel is preached in the whole world, What this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. The defense rests, Your Honor. Jesus does not just defend her in some general sense here. He takes her action and says, this will be 
part of the gospel proclamation throughout the ages, and it will be recounted as a memorial, not for me, for her. We're going to defend her for thousands of years. We're going to vindicate her in every tribe, in every tongue, in every nation for what she has done here today. She's poured herself out and she's washed the feet of him who in the gospel washes our feet. She's a living image of what a response to the gospel of grace should be. The response God is trying to elicit from our hearts. And the gospel shall not be preached, Jesus says, without this Mary being memorialized. And we are doing that this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says this. A good name is better than precious ointment. Good name is better than precious. Mary has given one away and obtained the other. Proverbs 22.1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Mary has given one away and obtained the other. So I want to conclude with three things we can learn, three takeaways here. I'm going to call them hospitality, devotion, and opportunity. Hospitality, devotion, and opportunity. First, hospitality. Jesus' ministry begins and ends with a meal. Right? It's it's an extraordinary thing. Um, when hospitality is practiced, as Simon the leper practices it here, unexpected and extraordinary things happen, as happen here. I think we could all bear witness to this, right? When you eat with the saints, things you did not anticipate happening when the invitation was issued happen. Bonds are expanded and built between the hearts of God's people. Right? And there's a certain kind of courage that Simon the leper shows, but also a willingness to opening his home. The kind of thing our fellowship meals stimulate. They can't substitute for it, as grand and as wonderful as they are, but they stimulate hospitality. And when hospitality is practiced, something mysterious, something administered by the grace of God happens. It dis- and the reason for this is that hospitality discloses to us the deep logic of the gospel. It's not just an ordinary command, like we have the gospel, and here's a bunch of commands over here. Right? This, is a, this is a deep thing to see. God has been hospitable to you in Jesus Christ. He has taken you who were outside of his house, who were strangers to him, who were alien or enemies to him, and invited you into his house so that he could feed you, so that you could eat with him and drink with him. Indeed, he has made you into his house so that he might dwell in us and we in him. Hospitality is in the DNA of the Christian church from the earliest days. Part of the mystery of Christianity's expansion through the Roman Empire was Christians were hospitable, and especially hospitable to even strangers. So the saints eating and drinking together can, quite frankly, transform a town. Right? It, it's, a, it's a sign of the kingdom and its joy and its victory over darkness. 
You know, at a meal like this, there's a unique combination of grace and the goodness of the natural order that are at play. And they play off one another in a very profound way. So practice then, as Paul says, practice. Notice it is a command. Practice hospitality, for that is the gospel embodied. Second thing is devotion. So now I'm going, to def- I'm going to, not that she needs it after our Lord is done, but I'm going to say a word in defense of this Mary. This Mary is mentioned three times in the Gospels. Three times. All three times, all three times you can locate her at Jesus' feet. She sat at his feet at a previous meal in Bethany. Last week, when she heard Jesus was coming to, to, to raise her brother, she ran to meet him and she fell at his feet. Here, she anoints his feet. Right? This is not only a deep humility, but she has a passionate devotion to the person of Jesus Christ. A passionate devotion to Jesus' person. Not just to serving Jesus. You know, it's possible to be passionately busy about serving Jesus and not be personally devoted to him. She has a devotion to his person such that she wants to be right at his feet, listening, sitting, contemplating, gazing. And this, Jesus said, is the one thing necessary. The better part. You can't be effective for Jesus until, like Mary, you've given something beautiful to Jesus. Something costly, something lavish, something extravagant, like the sum of our affections and our loves and a good deal of our time. Now, it is true, of course, in life, extremes and extravagance are not always good. But I think the danger in the circles most of us run in is something different than that. We can become so circumspect and so balanced and cautious not to make a mistake that we lose touch with the wild extravagance of the heart of this Mary. There's a wild, unscripted dimension to this kind of devotion. Right? Jesus doesn't say, we are now at the place in the fellowship meal where Mary will come up and anoint my feet. Turn to it on your programs. It's on the second page, halfway down. I hope we don't lose touch with an extravagance, a spontaneous extravagance. Not here, but in general context. We should have a sort of spontaneous extravagance for Jesus. There's a time to keep. Let me put it a different way. There's a time to keep. And there's a time to throw away, Ecclesiastes says. Mary knows what time this is. You know what time it is? It's a time to throw away. Smash the alabaster jar. Pour it out in devotion to the Lord. Before his passion. You know, ten years from now, After Jesus has ascended, you might take the ointment, sell it, and give it to the poor. 
But this is a time to throw it away on the feet of Jesus. And that brings me to the third op- application here, opportunity. Opportunities to do good in life do not remain forever. A, I state the obvious sometimes, but sometimes we forget this. Right? We, tend to, we tend to think people and opportunities are going to be around for a long time. Then they move or they die and something happens and we realize we didn't get something done that we needed to do. We never said something we needed to say. Had Mary waited, the time would have passed. The very next day, Jesus goes into Jerusalem on the triumphal entry. That's it. Then you've got the oil and you have to maybe give it to the poor. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. And we live without guarantees. And so Paul says, as we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, let us do good. Let us do good. Even Jesus was aware of this constraint. He says a number of times in this gospel... He says, night is coming when we can't work. So we work now while there's light in the world. He knew that, from an earthly point of view, his works would cease shortly. So he had to be busy. We face the same kinds of constraints. Our lives are finite. People and opportunities come and go in and out of our purview all the time. They don't sit around and wait for us. Everything's in flux and it's not in our hands. As investors know, conditions are never optimal. Conditions are never optimal. When I was preparing this sermon, I read a a sad story about the famous uh, 19th century Scottish philosopher, writer, historian, Thomas Carlyle. It's a story about how he failed to appreciate his long-suffering wife while she was still alive. Carlyle writes this after her death. If only I could see her but once more, were it but for five minutes, to let her know that I always loved her. She never did know it. Never. Terribly sad. You run out of time. You run out of opportunities. And you can, with any person or situation, run out of time or opportunity at any time. Today, then, is the day, the opportune time to be lavish in service to Jesus, to his people, to his cause. Our deeds are not going to be memorialized like Mary's, but they do ripple out into the world. So see and seize with wisdom the opportunities God presents, because they're not going to sit there forever. The gift of Jesus, anointed for his burial... Demands, as the hymn says, our hearts, our souls, our all. Praise be to God for the gospel and for Mary's witness to it. Amen.